Well, good morning. Before we uh, jump into our study of Acts chapter 5, I want to remind you about our very exciting day that's going to happen next Sunday, December the 3rd. There are three things that you are not going to want to miss. At 4 p.m., we're going to have a groundbreaking for our new auditorium, and we are inviting everybody to come, and there's going to be a reception after that uh, brief time of celebration and then at 5 o'clock, we're going to have our annual family meeting where we vote on our budget and a few other things. And then at 6 o'clock is our annual Hanging to the Green service where we just all come together it's for the whole family. Uh, we decorate our auditorium here. Uh, we sing lots of Christmas carols, and we have lots of cookies afterwards. And I share that because I know that's the only reason some of you will come for the cookies. And so uh, we just want you to be part of that. We want you to schedule these things uh, and just make this a part of your celebration as we begin our Advent season. I also want to remind you uh, that today is the last day uh, to accelerate your next-gen giving before we close in our financing this week. We've been encouraging everyone to do that who can so we can bring as much money to the close as possible, borrow as little as possible. And I want to just say thank you to everybody who's already given. Uh, It's been amazing. Uh, We're really grateful, and if you're able to do that today, we really appreciate it. Uh, While you're doing that, uh, please keep praying for those last few details. There's a few things that still have to be kind of tied off and and, uh, finalized, and we need your prayers uh, to make sure that all comes together. Well, if you don't have your Bibles open, go ahead and get to Acts chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 42 today, and this is one of the most amazing stories in the book of Acts. And it is a story that tells us how we can be unstoppable Christ followers. And and to get at the message of this story, I want to talk to you for a couple moments about one of the most interesting features of modern American life. And here it is. You might want to write this down just to kind of think about it. As a people, we are safer than ever, but we are more afraid than ever. We are a fearful people. And this is despite the reality that in America, we live in one of the safest countries in the world, and we live during a time when the truth is, statistically, we are under less threat from crime and from disease than we have been in many years. I've been reading different articles about this for several years now in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Psychology Today, The Atlantic, among others. And these articles have talked about this interesting phenomenon how we live in a day-to-day when, for example, violent crime is about half what it was in 1991, and yet it still feels like, to most people, we're under siege from crime everywhere all the time. Uh, We we live in a time when, you know, parents are so fearful of what will happen to their children, and yet the truth statistically is our children today are less likely to die from disease or from accidents. Uh, Child mortality rates have fallen nearly half uh, since 1990. Uh, Actually, you may be surprised at this. Missing children reports are down 40% since 1997. And I've shared this, and I could share more, but some of you still wouldn't believe me because that's not how you think it really is. And I I think that the reasons why we are so fearful are kind of complex, and it's really not the point of my message today. I simply want us to think about who we are as Christ followers in the midst of this reality 
of us living in one of the safest nations in the whole world, and here in our region, most of us living in some of the safest parts of that nation, this reality that we're still scared, we're still afraid, we're still worried. Everybody's got to have a helmet and a seatbelt, and everybody has to have a lawyer and a bunch of insurance and a bunch of other stuff, and we just live in this kind of mode of thinking, and it creeps into our Christianity, and consequently, we end up many times not being very bold people. We are so worried, so afraid. You know, and some of you, I was thinking about this, have traveled all over the world, and you've encountered Christians in other parts of the world, and you know that those Christians there, if they heard any of our prayers, they would probably laugh at us because American Christians pray stuff like, like you know, God, please keep us safe on our journey to Southern California because it's so dangerous out there. <laughs> you know, and, and people in other parts of the world are thinking, we don't even have seatbelts. In fact, we ride in the back of dump trucks, you know, and, and, and you're worried about staying safe. And then we, we, we pray things like, you know, help me just to get through school. And other Christians around the world would say, oh, you get to go to school. That's awesome. That's awesome. And we're always praying. Have you noticed? Lord, bless me. Lord, bless me. And I wonder if Christians in other parts of the world would hear an American pray, bless me, and they would think to themselves, like, you don't have enough already? You know, because we have money in our bank accounts, and some of you have so much stuff that you pay people money to keep your stuff somewhere because you don't have room in your house for all your stuff. Amen? <laughs> and who knows how much food we threw away on Thanksgiving, right? We just didn't eat because we had too much, and we're still praying, oh, God, bless us. My point is we have so much safety, and we have so much blessing. Why are we still afraid? Why are we still worried? Now, just to be clear, because I don't want anybody leaving here and saying, you know, Pastor Mike says you shouldn't ask God to bless you. I did not say that, and I did not say that you should never ask God to help you or you shouldn't ask God to keep you safe. I pray all those things, and it's fine to pray all those things. What I am saying is maybe a little perspective would help. Maybe we should look at our safety and we should look at our blessing, and that should lead us to be less afraid and more bold, not the opposite. What I want us to see in this passage we're looking at today is that God is calling us to be people of courage, people who are hearing Jesus say, follow me, I am sending you, take up your cross and die to yourself. And that's really what we've been watching these early Christ followers do these last few weeks as we've been studying the first chapters of Acts. These are courageous people. These are people of action. They knew God had sent them, and they went out, and they followed Christ, and they would not stop following Christ. They would not stop obeying Christ. In fact, today, I want you to remember just two words about following Jesus, about serving Jesus. Those words are never stop. Never stop. Say never stop. Never stop. God calls us to never stop. God has sent every Christ follower out on his mission, and he just wants us to never stop, never stop worshiping him with passion, never stop sharing the good news, never stop serving and loving other people, just, just never stop. Now we're in Acts 5, 12 to 42, this awesome story we're going to read and talk our way through. I want to begin with verses 12 through 16 where Luke writes, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. 
and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Now, this was like the front porch of the temple. There was always lots of people coming and going. Uh, and just keep in mind, that means the believers are meeting in full sight of the religious leaders. Don't forget what we saw happening back in chapter 4, verse 13. No one else dared join them, Luke says, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. There was just this spiritual power uh, among these early Christ followers so much that the people saw it and felt it and respected them. But at the same time, there was something that caused them to be afraid. Maybe they were afraid to be seen with these Christ followers in public because of the religious leaders. Maybe they'd heard about Ananias and Sapphira. Anybody else still a little creeped out by that story last week? The point is God was working. The point is Many people were being saved. Verse 15 says, As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. See, God was just working in powerful ways. People were getting healed and and saved. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead was there, present, working among these early believers. And then something happened, and it still happens today. You see, when God begins to work in your life, when God begins to do some great things, there will always be opposition, always. And it will come in different forms. It will come in different intensities, but you will always face it. And then you will always face this issue. It will be an issue for you. And the issue is, will I keep going? Will I keep following Jesus? Keep obeying Jesus? Or will I stop? See, far too often, let's just get honest with ourselves. Far too many of us, we just stop. We give up. We, we encounter opposition, we encounter some pain, we encounter some difficulty, and we just stop. Now look what these guys did, these early believers, verses 17 and 18. It says, Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Now I, I told you earlier, the Sadducees were a sect of the religious leaders These were the most powerful people in Palestine among the Jewish people. They were the wealthy, the landowners, the elites. And and as I told you earlier, these people did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. This is the very thing that the apostles were proclaiming. Now, these believers have, have been thrown in jail. What are they going to do? Will they stop? Or will they keep obeying? Will they keep following? As we continue to look at their story, I want you to see four things that we should never stop doing. Four things that we should never stop doing. Number one, we should never stop telling people about new life in Jesus. This is the first thing we see about an unstoppable Christ follower, that even when people ostracize you, even when people oppose you, even when people don't like what you're telling them, even if they persecute you, you're to never stop telling people about new life in Jesus. Now, I want you to try to put yourself in the place of these early apostles and try to 
ask yourself honestly, what would you do if you were in their place? What would you do if the government, and this is really what we're talking about here, if the government arrested you and put you in jail because you were telling your friends and telling your neighbors about the new life Jesus offers? What would you do? Look at verses 19 through 21. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. What did they do? Well, they were arrested. They were thrown in jail. God performs a miracle and sends an angel who opens the door and sets them free. And that angel tells them, here's what God wants you to do. He wants you to go back and do the very thing that got you arrested in the first place. Tell the people, did you see it? The full message of this new life. That was their charge. That's still our charge. Tell the people the full message of this new life. Never stop. Don't hold back. People need new life. The God who sent you in the first place is still on your side. And so they obey. They don't stop. They go back to the temple courts at daybreak. This is a very busy place, a very busy time. People would come at sunrise. They would begin their day by praying. And when they get there, the apostles are waiting for them, waiting to tell them about this new life in Jesus. They didn't stop. They went right back to the very place where their most dangerous enemies are. And it's interesting to consider this is also the place where the people are. You see, when our hearts are captivated by the reality that God loves us, that the God who sent his only son to die for us is always with us, that the God who sent us on his mission will never leave us or forsake us. When we are in that place, we will never stop telling people about new life in Jesus. I'm going to give you two things to to think about. The first is a reminder. The second is a question. First, I want to remind you that we have life to share. We have life to share. In other words, we have good news. And we forget this sometimes because people don't like to hear it. When people don't like to hear it, you need to remind yourself, even if they don't want to hear it, it's still life. It's still good news. Jesus is the way to life. He is the only way to life. He is the only way to the Father. And so we are bold because we know we have something good to share, to offer. And then second, here's the question. See, it's a fact that most Christ followers don't really tell other people about new life in Jesus. So the question is, what's keeping you from sharing this new life with people? I want to just challenge you. Do you have the courage to write that down? I just thought about this just right now. This is for some of you here right now. Some of you aren't even going to write that down because you're too afraid to confront that question. Do you have the courage to write that question down and actually think about it? Why aren't you sharing? See, it'd be really good right now if a bunch of heads went down and you at least acted like you were writing it down. So I would. (laughs) It's a good question, isn't it? It's an important question. Why have we stopped sharing? I mean, if you used to tell people, what made the difference between then and now? Is it fear? Is it apathy? I mean, what is it? And then I want you also just to 
put this down. I, I, I want you to write someone's name down. Who do you need to tell? Maybe somebody has come to your mind. Maybe you know who that person is that God has kind of put front and center in your life, the person that you should be sharing with. Maybe it's someone you spent Thanksgiving weekend with, someone in your family. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. I don't know. But would you write down a name, at least one, Write down a name that God brings to your mind, someone that you can begin praying for. And here's the specific challenge with that name. I want to challenge you to pray for that person all through this Christmas season and look for an opportunity to tell them about new life in Jesus sometime before Christmas. See, we should never stop telling people about new life in Jesus. Here's the second thing. We should never stop obeying God, even when it's dangerous. Look again at verse 21. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the door, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. That was kind of freaky, I would imagine. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Now, they're the military. They're the police force. They have the power, but they're afraid of the people. And so basically what happens is they quietly kind of come up and they tap Peter on the shoulder and say, Peter, would you please arrest yourself and come with us right now? (laughs) And that's really what they did. Okay, we'll go with you. They volunteered to go with him. They were afraid of the people. I came across this a few years ago. Maybe you've read about it. The U.S. Peace Corps put together a manual for volunteers serving in the Amazon jungle. And in this manual, they had a lot of different stuff, but one of the things they had was these instructions on how you should react if you ever got attacked by an anaconda, which is the largest snake in the world, which grows to about 35 feet long, which has the capacity to swallow a three to 400-pound animal, one of those. And this comes straight from the animal. These instructions. Number one, if an anaconda attacks you, don't run. The snake is faster than you are. Number two, lie flat on the ground. Put your arms tight against your side and your legs tight against one another. Number three, tuck in your chin. Number four, and if you aren't sweating already, I'm just letting you know you're going to start, some of you right now. Number four, the snake will begin to nudge and climb over your body. Number five, do not panic. Okay. Number six, after the snake has examined you, it will begin to swallow you feet first. Permit the snake to swallow your feet and ankles. Do not panic. Number seven, the snake will now begin to suck your legs into its body. You must lie perfectly still. This will take a long time. (laughs) Number eight, 
When the snake reaches your knees, slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, very gently slide it into the side of the snake's mouth between the edge of its mouth and your leg. Then suddenly rip upwards, severing its head. Number nine, be sure to have your knife. It's like, okay, now you tell me, now you tell me. Well, you know, there are, there are times when obeying God is going to lead us into and not away from danger. And we need to remind ourselves, especially as Americans, for millions of Christ followers down through 20 centuries now, this has been the reality of their lives. For staggering numbers of people, obeying Christ has meant that they would suffer and sometimes they would even give their lives. But you need to remember, so many of these people, they never stopped. They never stopped. Many of us, we don't stop at the first sign of danger. We stop at the first sign of discomfort. There's a promise in Scripture that we all know, but we are very reluctant to claim. It's in John 16, where Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. See, trouble is part of the life of following Jesus Christ. And there's a reason for that. You can write this down. God is far more interested in our character than our comfort. I don't know who first said that, but it is so true. And because God is far more interested in our character than our comfort, he will bring trouble into our lives sometimes, and that trouble will give us an opportunity. It will give us a choice. Are we going to obey or are we going to stop? Will we keep obeying or will we stop? Will we stop loving? Will we stop sharing? Look at verse 27. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And I, I think Peter and the other apostles probably thought, well, it's because you are. You know, we were there. It's just been a couple of months. You're the ones who tried Jesus. You're the ones who falsely convicted Jesus. You're the ones who insisted he be crucified. You are guilty. I didn't say that. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. Now, the Bible teaches us that as far as it depends on us, we ought to live in a peace with all people and the apostles understand this. They're not going to trade insults with these leaders. They knew, and some of us need to learn, that God doesn't ever call his people to be obnoxious. That's not your call, okay? They knew that they were supposed to submit to the authorities. But when that authority goes directly against God, who is the highest authority, then people who follow God always have a choice to make. Even though most of us we're probably never going to face a life or death choice regarding our obedience to Jesus. There will come times in our lives when we must decide whether or not we're going to obey Christ, even if it costs us. Psalm 56, 3 and 4, a couple of my favorite verses say, When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal men do to me? You know what I think? I, I think that Peter and John probably knew those verses by heart. I think they had them memorized. And 
I think that they were fortified by those verses. They knew they had to obey God. What can mere people do to us? And so they respond. The apostles just go right ahead. They tell the truth. Verses 30 to 32 says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. And Peter just goes there again. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And by the way, in case you're wondering, that's the gospel right there. It's all right there in those verses. I just wanna ask you, reading that, is there a situation in your life right now where you have stopped obeying God because there's some danger involved. You know, if you do what God tells you to do, it's going to cost you. This story is reminding us, never stop. Never stop. Just keep obeying. Just keep following. Just keep sharing. Third reason we should never stop. We should never stop trusting that God is in control. You see, when these apostles said they were going to obey God instead of the authorities, when they, when they repeated their teaching that these leaders had indeed killed the Son of God, that just set the Sanhedrin off. I mean, they were f- furious. That's what it says in verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, men of Israel, Consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a a band of people in revolt. He, too, was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, Gamaliel, with this respected leader, was a highly skilled politician, and that's what he's kind of doing here. He's reminding them of how things work in their context at this time. They are a people who's under the military power of the Roman Empire, and and so they're in this delicate place. And he says, remember when this guy Thutis showed up a few years ago, and we don't even know anything else about Thutis. There's no historical record about him except for this, but some guy rose up. He had a cause. He gathered some people to himself, and Gamaliel says, but remember what happened. The Romans came in and squashed him like a bug. We didn't have to do a thing. He said, and also, this guy Judas, the Galilean, he rose up. Now, we do know about him from history. He's the guy who founded the party that became known as the Zealots. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples was a Zealot. His name was Simon. Judas the Galilean rose up. Same way, some people gathered together. They, they revolted, but the Romans came and squashed them like a bug. It all went away. Gamaliel said, it's worked out pretty good for us so far. Let the Romans take care of it. We don't need to get involved. We don't need to kill these men. We don't need to create 12 more martyrs in addition to the one we've already created with Jesus. Let it go. Because he said, if it's from men, it's going to fail. But if it's from God, you're not going to be able to stop 
these men. So what do you think? Was it from God or not? Well, 2,000 years later, we're still here, aren't we? (laughs) 2,000 years later, over 2 billion people named the name of Jesus Christ because these men didn't stop, and we should never stop. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church, and he has kept that promise. And you know, I think in America, sometimes we have a skewed perspective on this. We look at the churches around us, and it seems like more and more people are leaving the Christian faith. And we look at Europe, and and the churches and the cathedrals are empty. But that's not the whole picture in the world. Do you know that in most of the other parts of the world, Christianity is flourishing, it's expanding, it's thriving In 1900, only 4% of the people on the continent of Africa named the name of Christ. Now it's well over 40% who do. I have read not too long ago that there are more Anglicans in Nigeria than there are in England and in America combined. Think about that. Uh, You go to South America, and Pentecostal Christians are numbered by the tens and tens of millions. I mean, we just keep going Jesus is building his church. There's an old historical story. It's a true story. It's so ironic. I love the irony of this story about a guy named Voltaire, French philosopher who was an atheist. And in 1778, right before he died, he said, in 100 years, the Bible will be swept from human existence and Christianity will be no more. How many of you don't even know who Voltaire is? You've never heard of him before. Here's the real irony After he died, they auctioned off his estate and the Geneva Bible Society bought his house. And they moved their printing presses into his house and over the years printed hundreds of thousands, even millions of Bibles from Voltaire's house, shipping them all over the world. They never stopped. They never stopped. Here's a fourth reason we should never stop. Uh, We should never stop rejoicing even when life is painful. Uh, I came across this amazing quote this past week. It's from a guy named G.K. Chesterton, and he's just this author that knows how to say things in ways you never forget. And he said this, Jesus promised his disciples three things, that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. (laughs) And that quote uh, makes me think of these final three verses. Let's begin reading in verse 40. His speech, that is from Gamaliel, persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now you need to know this is the very first time that we see physical abuse for preaching in the name of Jesus happen. And then after this come two of the most amazing verses in the Bible. Look at verses 41 and 42. It says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped. That's where the title of this message comes from. They never stopped. Say to them, they never stopped. They never stopped, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Do you realize how awesome that is? We read those verses and we just kind of skim over the surface of them. We don't really see what happened. They never stopped and they rejoiced. 
they rejoiced in spite of the reality that they were flogged. It's so easy to read those words and just go on by, but you need to know this means that they were beaten with something like a cat of nine tails, a leather whip that would have had pieces of bone and metal and glass embedded in the end so that it would rip and tear flesh. They were probably beaten 39 times according to the law. They would have watched as each apostle in front of them received that flogging. They were waiting their turn. Maybe Peter went first and John had to watch him and then John went next and the other apostles had to watch John and they heard their cries and they saw their pain and they knew it was coming for them and they experienced this. They knew that they were going to be permanently disfigured, scarred for the rest of their lives and they rejoiced. They rejoiced. How does that happen? But when you care more about the applause of heaven than the applause of men, when the good news of Jesus Christ is actually what gets you out of bed every day, when you realize that the one who conquered death is now in you, living in you, then you can keep going. You can rejoice. You don't need to stop. And that's what they did. You know, the Bible is just full of commands to rejoice. Have you ever noticed that? All these times we're being told to rejoice. It's pretty annoying sometimes, isn't it? Like James 1, 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Or Philippians 4, 4 that says, Rejoice in the Lord, what? Always. Always. I hate that. <laughs> Always. I will say it again, rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So how can we do this? Well, it is all rooted in a passion for God's mission, knowing that we are sent, we are sent by God out into the world that needs life, and we are sent to tell others about new life in Christ. Write this one down. Courage and joy rise when you have a call that's greater than your circumstances. See, that's what the apostles had. That's why they could say, we rejoice in the fact that we get beat up for Jesus. That's our call. That's who we are. It's what we do. That's just life. And we're never going to stop. That's our cause. You have a cause like that? I mean, are, are you that sold out to a cause? Or is your focus more on your circumstances, not your cause? See, this is, this is what the Apostle Paul was talking about, especially in Philippians 1. And I, I love how the message paraphrases this part, part. Paul is writing from prison. Remember that about Philippians? Prison was his circumstance. But he had a cause. And he writes, on the contrary, everything happening to me in this jail only serves to make Christ more accurately known regardless of whether I live or die. They didn't shut me up. They gave me a pulpit. Alive, I'm Christ's messenger. Dead, I'm his bounty. Life versus even more life. I can't lose. And that is why Paul could say, for me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain. I have a mission. I have a cause. And yes, life may be bad. And yes, circumstances may be unfair. But Paul says, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is Lord. So bring it on. I'm not going to stop. Do you have a cause like that? Do you have 
in your heart such a rock-solid belief system that it empowers you, enables you to live a life filled to the fullest, and if you die, you would just count it as gain. Or maybe right now, it feels very different for you. Maybe right now, your courage quotient is pretty low because you're focused on the circumstances of your life rather than your life's cause. You see, it just works this way. If you have a cause, your courage will rise. If you're focused on your circumstances, you will be defeated. You will get discouraged. And I'm just thinking that maybe some of us here today came into this room and we're not consumed with the cause. We're consumed right now with our circumstances. And if that is you, I challenge you to listen to God and his message and his truth. And he is saying to you, be strong, be courageous. I will be with you. You can never stop. You can keep on following me. I, this may kind of date me, but um, I still love the Rocky movies, don't you? I think I've seen all 15 of them, and they just like get you fired up, right? You know? And I don't know if you remember in, in Rocky V, where Rocky is really old now and brain damaged. I mean, not a surprise when you watch the movies, but he's, he's too brain damaged and he's too old to fight anymore. And so he trains this kid named Tommy Gunn and, and Tommy Gunn becomes a heavyweight champion of the world. But then Tommy gets in with these bad characters, these bad promoters, and he comes back and he's taunting Rocky and he wants to fight Rocky in the street. And I, I don't know if you remember the scene or not, but he stands in front of Rocky's house and Rocky's got his kids and his wife standing there with him, and Tommy says, Come out here, Rocky Balboa. I want to fight you tonight. And Rocky mumbles something because that's all Rocky ever did. He's just mumbling all the time. And, and, and then Tommy starts making fun of Adrian. And, and Rocky says, Hey, yo, Tommy, you know, don't make fun of Adrian, you know. And, and then Tommy starts making fun of his kids, and that's all he can take. And even though he doesn't want to do it, he takes off his coat and he walks out into the street and says, All right, come on, Tommy. And and Tommy's this young, strong, really fast guy, and he just beats Rocky up and down the street, you know, left, right, left, right, left, right. I mean, he just goes on and on, and finally, it's one of those real famous, you know, slow-motion movie punches, and it's booming. Rocky's head flies back, and the sweat and the blood flies off, and he falls in slow motion into this pile of garbage, this is Rocky. I mean, he's a former heavyweight champion of the world, and he's mentored this guy, and now he's been beaten. He's lying in a pile of garbage, and he can't get up. And while he's there, he starts having these visions. Remember this? He sees in Rocky II where he fights and he defeats Apollo Creed, and then he sees that time in Rocky III where he beats Mr. T, I mean, Clubber Lang, you know, and, and then he sees... He sees in Rocky IV when he fought the big Russian machine guy, but he still can't get up, and he's got these visions of all these people chanting, Rocky, 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 but he still can't get up. But then after that, he has another vision. This guy comes to him. It's, it's his manager, Mickey, and his manager who died. Remember Mickey, little Burgess Meredith, the guy with the hat? And in this vision, he goes, Rocky, this is Mickey. Mickey loves you. Get up, you bum. Get up. And then the music starts. 
and he's pulling the banana peels off his arms. He's kicking the Mountain Dew cans out of the way, and the music's getting louder and louder, and you know it's about to happen. And he gets up, and he says, yo, Tommy, the fight's not over, man. And, <laughs> and of course, he now has the strength just to beat Tommy all the way down the street. I mean, that's, that's exactly what would happen in real life, right? I mean, you got to love the movies. Now, now here's... Here's what I think when I see that scene. See, I think all the positive thinking in the world couldn't get Rocky up. I think all the focus on his past failures or successes couldn't get Rocky up. You know what got him up? He had a vision of someone who loved him, who came back from the dead and said to him, I love you. Get up, you bum, get up. You see, that's what motivated Peter and John. They knew the resurrected Jesus. And that's what we need, too, when we get discouraged. We need to capture a vision of Jesus who says to us, come on, I love you, get up. I conquered death. I'm living inside of you, get up. Be strong, be courageous, I am with you. Never stop, never stop. See, I don't know that maybe today God has brought somebody here to hear this very message. Maybe today you're discouraged and you're ready to give up or you've given up and you're just kind of hanging on. You know, courage is such a powerful thing, but so is discouragement. Courage comes from living life in the hands of God and maybe some of us have stepped away from that and we're losing strength. We're going to close our time, and here's what I want us to do. I'm going to ask all of us in this room to pray for everyone else in this room. I want us to pray that God would give each person who's sitting around you courage. You may not know their name. You don't need to. God knows their name. I want you to pray for yourself because you may be the person who, who needs that, that courage. Maybe God will also bring someone specific to mind you know, that you need to pray for. You, you lift them up. And then I want to make sure that you also, while you're doing that, you, you pray for those people that you know who need new life. Maybe that person that you wrote a name down, you pray for them. We're going to do this together because God is living within us and God is never going to leave us and therefore we never need to stop following him and serving him and obeying him. And we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to give us the strength to do what he's called us to do, what he's sent us to do. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes as we pray together? Heavenly Father, we, we come before you right now in the name of your son, Jesus, and we, we lift up all these names to you. Father, we pray for the people who are in this room. And Lord, you know uh, who is here today who's discouraged and who maybe has stepped aside, maybe even given up. And will you just give us your strength again? Will you remind us of the, the grace you have shown us again? Will you encourage us again? Lord, we, to the best we know now how, we are just placing ourselves in your hands. And Lord, for ourselves, we may need to pray because we're the one who's discouraged. Lord, help us to see your mission again. Help us to see your son Jesus again.
And Father, we, we pray for those names that you have put on our hearts, those names of people, Lord, who have never met you. Lord, we ask that you would open their hearts and open their eyes. We ask that you would grant them repentance and grant them faith. Lord, we ask that, that we would be courageous and we would walk through the doors that you open and you would use us to share your love with them, that you would use us, Father, to tell them about the new life they can have in Christ. Lord, it is our prayer today that these next few weeks as we celebrate the birth of your son once again, the entrance of you into our world, Lord, in flesh, that this would be a time in which we were encouraged, a time which we share, a time in which, Father, many people come to know who you really are. Lord, we ask you to use us as your people here at Southwinds to bring glory and honor to your name. And we pray, Father, these things all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, and all God's people together said,